Hey, everybody, welcome to the 10 to 12 podcast, the exclusive podcast for members of Teamsters Local 1150. I'm Stephen French. I'm Vinny Kaitsi. So in, in my work as a, as a union representative, right now, the most common question I get is about contract negotiations. Same here. We're a year and a half out, and every member, young and old, wants to know about are the company and the union talking yet? Mm-hmm. What are they talking about? For me, I get a lot of young guys talking about the difference between tier one, tier two, the wages, the retirement benefits. What are you guys going to do to fix that? I get a lot of questions about um, if there's going to be a package at the end of the contract for uh, uh, people looking to retire. Yep. I also get a lot about tier two as well. Yep. Yeah, me too. I get those questions as well. So clearly this is on the minds of the members, and we need to talk about it. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, and no better person to talk about it with than the principal officer, secretary, treasurer of Teamsters Local 1150, Rocco Kahlo. So Rocco is joining us now. Welcome to the show, Rocco. Thanks for having me. So our current contract expires in February of 2023. So when do you anticipate that negotiations are going to start? Officially, we'll probably start around September or, or, or October of 22. Um, that's what, you know, official statements and um, ground rules and things of that nature. But we have a ton of work to do prior to that. Um, we will be sending surveys out to all of our members. Uh, we'll have to tabulate the surveys once they get back. We'll have to formulate our proposals based not only off the surveys that the members send back, but um, things that we've experienced, especially through the grievance procedure over the last four or five years. Uh, we'll have to cost out the proposals, and obviously there are some proposals that are going to take a lot more time um, than others. So what, are, what is that survey going to look like? What, is, what does a member have the opportunity to do with that survey? Normally what we do is we take the top five categories, which are wages, health care, uh, pension, uh, seniority, um, a couple others, and we ask the members to rank them in order of importance. And then we give them room on the survey for anything else that they want to add. So from soup to nuts, whatever the member would like to see in the contract, they'll be able to uh, get that to us. What are going to be the major topics discussed at the negotiating table? So as always, health care is a huge issue. Um, we are actually having conversations about health care right now. We are trying to move out of the company plan into a Teamster health and welfare uh, plan. And there's a couple routes we can go there. Uh, Tri-state Teamsters uh, is one. And the other one is Allegiant Care. Uh, Allegiant Care seems to be a little bit more of an easy move now as they're familiar with employers our size. Uh, they do all of the benefit uh, it benefits in administration for uh, people like Anheuser-Busch, which is a similar size unit to us. They have very similar health care plans where our there are indemnity plans available. There's high deductible plans available. Um, I think we have a real shot in doing that. 
provided that we can bring the cost under control and it's something that we could sell to the company. What would you say to somebody who's uh, maybe a little nervous about moving away from a big company like, like Cigna? Well, Cigna is an administrator, right? So um, Allegiant Care would be and share the same discounts that groups like Cigna and Anthem have. Matter of fact, they, I think they use Cigna um, as their administrator. So, you know, all the doctors would still be in the plan. Um, we, we're tr we would try to make it seamless for the member, right? Um, and, y you know, to that point, we would never negotiate anything that isn't uh, an improvement for the membership. We'll be keeping the membership in the loop on what everything that's going on as it as it happens during negotiating. Yes, and there's s several things we've done over the last year or two uh, to increase our presence in social media uh, to try and you know increase participation at our meetings. Um, we have a great app right now, and I hope everybody downloads it because we will update that on a regular basis when we get into negotiations. We do our membership meetings not only in person, but we're doing them virtually also. Uh, we have a great website. We have two guys that we put on to uh, monitor and, and, and take care of the communication pages for us. And if a member wants information, it is going to be readily available to them. So, Rock, I want to go back to talking about issues at the negotiating table. Mm -hmm. We talked about health care, and that's, that's important stuff, and, and I hear a lot of talk about that from the membership. Um, frankly, there are some folks that aren't thrilled with the health care package that we have right now, so improving that is definitely on folks' minds. But I want to go the, to the big questions that we get all the time from, from members right now. One is, is there going to be a package? Right. Everybody wants to know, is there going to be a retirement package, um, an incentive package to help folks get out early? Um, and the younger folks want to know what we're going to do for, the, for, for them, for the Tier 2 folks. All right. So we'll take them one at a time. Um, on the question of whether we'll have a package or not, um, I can answer it this way. I can tell you if there's not a package for the older folks, there won't be a recommendation from the negotiating committee to ratify the contract. Um, I firmly believe that we will have something. Hopefully it's similar to what we've seen in the past. Uh, I know the guards have just gone through their negotiations and there was a package included um, in, in their CBA. It, it was limited as far as the numbers go, um, but I fully expect to have a package. Um, for the Tier 2 folks, look, you know, we did what we did with Tier 2 in order to keep the 53K, which is a big part of our future, affordable. Um, again, the company, we'll see some resistance from the company trying to, you know, increase tier two over tier one, but I think there's ways we could do it. One of the major things I want to do with the tier two folks is that they're lagging a little bit as far as other divisions of, U of uh, Lockheed Martin, excuse me, uh, as far as pension goes. I think we're going to be able to bump their pension up. Um, I'm not actually sure what, what form we can do that in, either increases to what they currently have or maybe look at a, a different type of uh, pension, a defined benefit pension that could be used as a supplement for them. Uh, we will try to increase uh, their wages. I think we have uh, 
a pretty good argument in a lot of cases, especially the higher skilled folks like in the machine shop, the gear grinders and stuff where we actually had trouble finding people over the last couple of years to fill those jobs because the pay scale wasn't high enough. So I think there's some opportunities there. And, and again, we're going to expose everything we possibly can and, uh, you know, try to do the best for everybody. Um, you have to understand there's only going to be so much money to go around, but we want to make sure we, we divvy it up uh, fairly. Yeah, for sure the company's having difficulty hiring because of that that Tier 2 wage scale. Um, I mean, there are, from supervisors to managers to executive-level folks within the company who are, you know, openly having those conversations with us saying, yeah, this tier two thing isn't working too well for us, especially when it comes to the machine shop and all that, um, having a lot of trouble hiring people um, at those wages. Um, let's go back mm -hmm. to the conversation about the uh, uh, possible retirement package. Um, I, I think a lot of our members are going to be happy to hear that. I don't want to call it a strike issue, but, um, you know, it's an issue that we're going to demand something on um, in order to get a recommendation on the uh, on the contract, which is nice to hear. But you talk about the, the security guards negotiated a package. Um, that's a handful of folks compared to us, right? Um, so, so how do we get something that's obviously significantly larger? So, look, the future uh, of, of Sikorsky is pretty bright. We have a ton of work. Uh, 53k program we will win at least one of the four FARA or the FARA programs uh, we're still rolling uh, in the presidential cage CRH uh, we're in the process of negotiating multi-year 10 now uh, we're doing Coast Guard cabins down in our Troy facility for the Coast Guard the Coast Guard currently has a fleet that's made up of UH-60s and Delphin aircraft, and I can tell you just going through uh, the plant with the Admiral of the Coast Guard just a uh, couple weeks ago, he came right out and said that he wants an entire fleet of UH-60s. Uh, he would, you know, let the Delphins um, go by the wayside once their life cycle ends. So, again, our future is very bright. Um, it would be a win-win for the company to get some of the older folks out and bring some of the newer, younger folks in to work these programs. Because as I said, and everybody sees this, we have a very long and bright future here at Sikorsky. So that is gonna encourage the company to, to do what we're asking them. Is there a good chance it will be ratifying the contract early, like last time? I don't know yet. Um, in, you know, if the company approaches us with that, uh, you know, we'll take a hard look at it. Um, there are some pros and cons to it. Uh, you know, obviously going early, people get their increases earlier, but it also cuts down on the amount of time we have to negotiate. It extends the life of the contract. Um, if the company wants to come up with a decent package, you know, I, I don't have any problem going early. Um, if not, and we're going to be banging heads, then, you know, we'll, we'll take it right to the end. So, Rock, we talk a lot about getting things that we've, that we've typically gotten in the past. Um, we, we talk from a position of our experience negotiating with United Technologies and Sikorsky Aircraft. 
Um, you have done one contract under Lockheed Martin, but let's let's face it, they were a new owner of the company at the time. Um, a, a lot of folks, including myself, feel like this might be a different ball game. It might be different dealing with Lockheed Martin now that they're that they got their their feet firmly on the ground um, as the owner of Sikorsky Aircraft. So so what's that going to look like? What are you expecting from Lockheed? So, you know, I'm not expecting much different than the last time. Uh, from our standpoint, I think we're in a much better bargaining spot. Uh, if you remember, um, the last time out, we kind of negotiated a package because we had to. Uh, we were, you know, on a downturn. Uh, our Florida facilities got consolidated. Uh, we, we went through some, some pain down there. Now it's just the opposite. As I said earlier, we're loaded with work. Um, it's a really good time to be negotiating a contract. Uh, what we found out, which what I think is going to be interesting coming into the next negotiations is, you know, as you said, we had a long-standing history with UTC. We have a very mature contract with UTC um, that Lockheed just picked up. And they picked it up not just on wages and benefits, but on contract language. Now, the contract language that we currently have, you know, again, is very mature. Uh, it, it's changed a little bit over our, our, our life with uh, UTC. But anytime you look at a contract, you, you know, you can't just read the words, right? You can't just look at black and white. There's things built into a contract um, that, that are important, such as intent. What is the intent of the language? And Lockheed uh, has come to find out the hard way uh, over the last couple of years that they can't just pick up the contract and say, oh, well, this is what the contract says, and this is why you lose your grievance, because what's more important than that language itself is the intent. And we have been able to refer back to contracts that were, you know, we did four and five times ago and say, all right, well, here's what the language was, and here's what it changed to today, and this is why it's changed, and, you know, the bell kind of goes off. So we're, we're still at an advantage because they don't understand, as I said, the intent of all the language in the contract, and financially we're at, at an advantage because of the amount of work we have coming in. What happens if the company is putting an acceptable offer across the table? Well, let's, let's hope that doesn't happen. But as we've done in Alabama in 2002 and here in Connecticut and Florida in 2006, um, the bargaining committee will not give a recommendation to ratify the contract, which means we could end up out on strike. Um, again, I don't want to be on strike. That's the last thing that I'm thinking. I think that's the last thing that the company wants to see. Um, but we cannot go into negotiations saying that we would never do that, right? We, we have to show that we're prepared to do it. We need to have the membership show that they're behind the negotiating committee and whatever the recommendation of the negotiating committee is, is what the member are gonna, is going to vote. So I don't want to ask you to tip your hand, and, and, mm -hmm. and that's fine if you don't want to, but what, what does an unacceptable offer look like? Like, what are some of those big issues or, or um, omissions in an offer they are going to prompt something like that? So, again, as I said, we're going to have to have a package for our older folks. 
we're going to have to have a little more for the tier two folks than we have for the tier one folks. Um, I, I want it to be fair. And listen, the other, the other thing that people need to understand is that the people sitting across the table from us have bosses too, right? So corporate is going to give them marching orders and they're going to say, well, this is what your contract should look like. Maybe it's 3% a year. Maybe it's 3.5% a year. But that doesn't mean that there's not ways we can fashion a contract to put more money in members' hands. And, and I'll give you an example. And, and we're looking at this currently. Uh, we have a large number of working leaders uh, throughout the facilities. Um, we probably have a ratio of one working leader to two workers uh, at the time. That, that's gotten out of hand over the years. So we may have the ability to build in another labor grade where we can get people to the working leader level um, without being a working leader and then bump the working leaders up. Uh, there, there's things we could do, you know, as far as bonuses and stuff to put more money in the members' hands that wouldn't, you know, send corporate through the roof. Let's let's talk some rumors because there's always rumors, right? Um, and I don't know where they come from, and they sometimes make me laugh. Um, but a couple that I've heard just in the last couple of days, and and I, I love how it happens because, um, you know, I, I talk to you a lot. Um, I'm on the negotiating committee, so I kind of you know, I hear what the reality is, but you get those folks out there that say hey, I heard that such and such is going to happen. And a couple of those things that I've actually heard just in the last couple of days is I heard Lockheed's going to take a week's vacation away from us because all of the every Lockheed facility except for Sikorsky Aircraft tops out at four weeks of vacation time where we top out at five weeks. Um, and we're going to lose our, our week off at Christmas time. So let's um, – I'm just going to throw those rumors at you. And, um, Rock, are you giving up our, our week-long holiday at Christmas time? And um... Ab Absolutely not. <laughs> and, listen, I will entertain um, moving some of those days to different parts of the year. Um, if someone wants to come to me and say, we'll take a day at Christmas time so we can give you Veterans Day off as a paid holiday, I think that's something we would take a look at. Same thing with Martin Luther King Day. Juneteenth. Um, if people want to move holidays around, that's fine. Are we going backwards? Absolutely not. So what about losing the pension? Because some folks are, are legitimately concerned that Lockheed's going to take that next step and actually eliminate everyone's pension. Okay. So I don't see that happening. Um, and, and I will tell you one of the other things that we have looked at was for the folks that are still in the defined uh, benefit pension, we are a little bit behind uh, where uh, the machinists are, which is the group that has the uh, F-35 program organized. Um, and we're looking at getting our defined benefit folks bumped up to that. Uh, I talked a little bit about the tier two folks and getting them a little more. I think if you look around Lockheed and um, at the different uh, divisions of Lockheed, you will see that um, their tier two folks throughout the corporation are doing a little bit better than ours right now. They're up around 8% when you look at uh, 
everything that goes into their pension, whether it's the defined contribution, uh, whether it's the cash balance or the 401k. So I do think that there's some room there. And it's one of the things that, you know, we were talking about with the tier two people earlier, but the elimination of a pension for existing folks is just, it's a non-starter. Good. So what is it like being at the negotiating table? Um, it's tough. Um, you know, there's a lot of folks on both sides and you know, you need to control emotion. Um, because there's things obviously that, um, you're not going to want to hear. Um, there's things that the other side does to try and get a reaction out of you. So it's important that you don't react. Um, there is a lot of discussion away from the table during every negotiations. And I know that's not, you know, a perfect scenario for everybody sitting at the table, but it's, um, where most of the stuff gets settled. Uh, I, I like doing subcommittees. Uh, I like having subcommittees come back and report to the full committee so we all stay involved. Um, but it's, you know, it, it, it's not like what you see on the movies, right? Um, there's professionals that come in there. Uh, we always start out negotiations uh, with opening remarks, uh, you know, and, and my opening remark for every negotiation I've, I, I've been in has been I'd much rather be a business partner than an adversary. And, you know, hopefully we can get there over the course of the negotiations. The company will come in and they will do, uh, you know, an extensive state of the business presentation. Um, again, you got to be aware of what they're telling you because, as I alluded to before, we're, we're in a pretty good situation as far as work. But, you know, they'll find a way to put a spin on it that says, well, yeah, we could be if we win this or, you know, but this can go bad on us shortly. And, you, you know, we don't know. We have to be prepared for that. But, you know, it's um, it's a cat and mouse game. And, you know, you just have to do your research. You have to be up on what's going on. And, uh, you know, hopefully we get there. So, Rock, there's something that I've heard from you in the past, um, and I think it's important for, for members to understand this about you, um, about the guy who's leading negotiations on their behalf. And, and the first time I ever heard you say this was in 2006, when we were clearly going down a road towards a strike, that you, f you absolutely feel the pressure and the weight of the, the responsibility that you have for not only 4,000 members, but 4,000 members and their families. Yeah, I, I, I don't think we were going down the road when I said that to you. I think we were already there. Mm -hmm. And um, it is a lot of pressure. Um, I do care. Um, you know, I, I would get calls from uh, members' kids saying my dad has to go back to work, you know, or I can't go back to college. Um, you, you know, it weighs very heavily on you. Um, we did an outstanding job at the picket line, I think, picking each other up. Um, but again, it's, it, it was probably the toughest decision I ever had to make to tell people to not ratify this contract and walk out on strike. Um, I knew what it meant to everybody. Uh, I know what it means as far as losing your health care or whatever. It's why we you know, set up some funds down here at the Union Hall and try to help people out as much as we possibly could uh, dur during the six weeks that we were out.
Yeah, and and you know to expand on that, I think we did an outstanding job as a union of taking care of our members who needed care. Um, you know, and listen, some folks crossed the picket line, and and a lot of them used that excuse that you know, hey, I got a sick wife, or hey, I have this condition. Um, my closest friend at the time had a son who who had cancer who was going through cancer treatments at the time and he didn't cross the picket line and i watched this union from the executive board down um to the eap department take care of him and his family uh, because he was on strike and because um, there were things that he wasn't able to do we made sure that he was able to do those things and i think that's important for our members to understand that if we end up in a place like that again um, we take care of our own yeah that's right and, and and let me just say this not one person and this is why there's no leniency for these people at all not one person that crossed that picket line came to the union hall and asked for help right had they come here and asked for help whether it was making a cobra payment so they had insurance for their family or you know they had bills that they, they were being foreclosed on we would have bailed them out to the extent that we possibly could, uh, we would have done it. If you remember, we had some pretty big rallies. There were unions from all over the country donating money. We set up strike and hardship funds, um, and we doled all that money out, right? And it kept people from crossing the line. But nobody, nobody that crossed that line came down here and asked for any help prior to doing it. They just did it. Yeah, and that's it. So, so you know, to all the members out there listening, um, and, and like Rocco said, we don't want to go down that road, but, but if we end up there, you know, we need to take care of one another. And, and part of being taken care of is asking for the help that you need. Um, so we're on that, on that subject, right? We're on the subject of a strike. So just be, be, before we move on, I, I just want to let everybody know that, you know, the union is on. Uh, very solid ground as far as financials go. Um, we are in a much, much better financial position now than we were back in 2006. So we will be able to help people should should we have to go out. And I don't want to make people nervous, right, the, continuing the conversation about a strike, but I think it's really important. I think preparation is important, right? Um, but, but can we talk about what the strike benefit looks like if that were to be the case sure so if you if we walk out you lose your insurance day one um there is a strike benefit through the international uh there was a five-day waiting period before you collect it um we have just changed that language in the constitution back in july at our last convention or june i'm sorry the end of june at our last convention so that waiting period is gone uh, your strike benefit basically is five times what your dues rate uh, is. So if you're at a $90 dues rate, you're looking at $450 a week. So how, uh, what can the membership do to prepare for a strike if it, if it comes to that? So what we did the last time out, um, again, we went around to a lot of the local businesses, um, some of the people that were serving us lunch, uh, some of the banks and stuff that we, we were using in the vicinity. Um, and just ask them to put signs up in their windows as support for, for the workers here. Uh, the membership has to stay unified. You know, any of the 
we can't perpetuate rumors that we hear on the floor. Um, it, it, we, we have to stay involved, right? And it's easier now for people to be involved than it ever has been before. I mean, you can show up at a meeting. You can use any one of our social media platforms. You can Zoom in, into our monthly meetings. Um, again, we're wearing your union shirts on a particular day of the week. I, I mean, when that company looks out on the floor and sees a, a sea of union shirts, it sends quite a message to them. It sends a message of unity and that we're going to do what we have to do. Ronald Reagan once said, deterrence of war by show of force. Right. So so we avoid a strike by by hopefully making sure that the company understands that we're willing to do it if we need to. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we don't want to end on on the note of talking about a strike. So um, let's go back and just say and, and this is just my opinion. And I guess what I'm asking is for you to to confirm my opinion. Um, and you alluded to it earlier. We're in a good bargaining position. So I think a strike is the last thing that this company wants to look at. I, I don't think that they can afford it. Um, I think that especially when it comes to the 53K, the penalties that are written into that contract are so huge um, that the, the company can't even consider um, being in a position where they're paying those penalties, not being able to deliver that aircraft. Yeah, so <clears throat> I agree with you. Um, and, and the other thing that you know, we should point out is UTC allowed us to go out on strike uh, back in 2006 and 2002 down in, in Alabama. The difference between UTC and Lockheed Martin, right? With UTC, you know, we were basically a drag on the corporation. People looked at Sikorsky as, you know, we were an $8 billion company. We might have been returning 7 or 8%. As opposed to places like Pratt, uh, Sunstrand, Hamilton Sunstrand, Otis, Carrier. I mean, these were all larger divisions of UTC, but they had a ton of commercial work. And they were returning 18, 19, 20% a year. So when you went to a UTC shareholders meeting, they were dying to throw Sikorsky out of that mix because we were actually a drag on the stock. Lockheed is, is a little bit different. 98% of what they do is government work, and they're okay with making 7 8 9 10% a year because they have everything. But to your point, Sikorsky, RMS, walking out on them puts a serious dent in, into what they're looking to accomplish. Yeah. Um, so you you said in, in the beginning of your, your comments, I think, um, that you open negotiations every time, um, essentially with a statement that you'd rather be a business partner than an adversary. Um, and, and, and I think leading this union, you do an outstanding job of, of making that happen. We are a partner in this business. Um, and, and we throw our political clout around on behalf of this company. We do a lot of things as a union to bring business to the company. Um, how do we cash in on that when it comes to negotiating time? Well, <clears throat> I think that's something we do right along um, throughout, you know, the course of the week, the month, the year. 
we continually work uh, with the company. We, we have our own lobbyists that we hire. Uh, they work on a daily basis with the uh, company's folks down in D.C. You know, we march in lockstep on Congress when it's something that is uh, beneficial for all of us. You, you know, uh, I, I can tell you, um, you know, people have all different political views, um, but one of the biggest feathers in our cap was getting Rosa DeLauro um, elected this last time out and having her become chair of appropriations uh, that is already paying dividends for us. If you take a look at where the where the budget is right now, uh, the president's request uh, was for 953Ks. It went through the House Appropriations Committee um, and under Rose's guidance, that, that was bumped up to 11K, 1153Ks. So what, whether that stays in the, in the budget, uh, if we ever get a budget um, this year or not, uh, we do know that we have people that are fighting for us. And, you know, it, it's hard, right, when you say, how do we cash in with the company on it? Because by doing this and bringing work in, into, into Lockheed, we, we are cashing in on it. We're cashing in from the standpoint that we're creating more jobs and therefore creating more members. It gives us the ability at the bargaining table to ask for more because they have more work. So, you know, we do indirectly cash in on, on, on the work we do. So I'm, I'm assuming that Lockheed is going to bring in some big guns. Um, I, I'm assuming that there are going to be Lockheed folks sitting at that table across from us. Um, so they're going to bring in some big shots. Are we going to bring in some big shots, or is Rocco Calo going to be the highest-ranking guy at the table? Well, I, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm, you know, by the time we get there, I don't know who the general president uh, of the international will be, but uh, it wouldn't be the first time that we had a general president at negotiations. And we will reach out, and we will do that. We will bring our D.C. lobbyists up um, to talk and – you know, as we go through things such as the state of the business, those guys live there. Um, you know, they could tell us what's truthful and, and what's not truthful. Um, the other thing is, again, and I'll go back to healthcare because it is so, so difficult. And and, and you know, we need help. I'm by far not a healthcare expert, but uh, we have contracted with the Siegel Corporation to come through, and uh, you know, they're consultants who do nothing but healthcare, healthcare and pension, and uh, they're probably the best in the country. And we'll have reps from there at the table also. Um, in addition to, you know, the joint council, um, the pension fund, uh, Allegiant Health, Health Fund, uh, Tri-State Health Fund, whichever route we decide we're gonna, we're gonna go with as far as a proposal, we'll, we'll have, you know, trustees or executors from from all of those uh, entities at the table with us. So, Rock, thank you for being here. Um, we, we appreciate the conversation. I'm sure the members appreciate the conversation. Um, I'll, I'll just say that, you know, we need to, we need to be uh, a solid union and stick together and show that unity. Um, that's our part as members. That's the part we play um, in making these upcoming negotiations successful. Um, but but thank you again for being here, and we appreciate it. And I'm sure that members are going to email us with all kinds of questions, so we may ask you to come back at some point. I'm happy to do so.
All right. Thanks again. So if any members out there want to hear more from Rocco, you have questions about um, contract negotiations that you didn't hear answered, just email us at comms at teamsters1150.org. That's C-O-M-M-S at teamsters1150.org. Let us know what you want to hear, and um, we'll either answer your questions on the next episode or we'll invite Rocco back for another episode and and have him clear some stuff up. Um, So I think that leads us to this week's contest. Since this podcast was about everything about our union, this week's contest is when was Teamsters Local 1150 chartered? When was Teamsters Local 1150 chartered? Meaning, when did when did we get established? When was Teamsters Local 1150 established? So answer that question in an email to comms at teamsters1150.org. Make sure you give us your contact information and your name. And um, all the correct answers are going to be put into a hat. We'll pick at random a winner, and you'll win some cool stuff, some Local 1150 stuff. All right, that does it for this week's episode. Thanks, everybody, for downloading and for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you next time.